Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Welcome to Seacoast. All the communion you want. It's all yours, baby. Whatever you want. With a jacket like that, you can have whatever you want, okay? Good morning, everyone. My name is Dominic, one of the pastors here. If we haven't met, wonderful to meet you. And if we've met, good to see you all again. Uh, we're in the book of John, continuing the book of John. So if you have a Bible with you, turn to chapter 5. And as you're turning there, I'm going to talk a little bit about fishing. And uh, not the fishing that will be in the Bible, but maybe some of you were fished this week um, in your email, and you got an email from Pastor Ryan. Um, many of you, even this morning, have found me, and uh, I felt like a call center this weekend of just fielding calls and emails of, no, Ryan would never ask you for a gift card. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you may find out what I'm talking about. So just FYI, something is breached in our database, and we're working on it, and uh, so you probably got an email from Ryan Rosenbaum, and it had his picture on it, and it had his name on it, and it even said something like ryanrosenbaum.seacoastchurch at gmail, or the new one is pastorryan.seacoast at gmail. That is not Pastor Ryan Rosenbaum from Seacoast Community Church. That is somebody who is uh, doing a scam, and they're asking for gift cards. And they're asking for gift cards to give to women with cancer. And it sounds like a beautiful cause. And you are such a beautiful church that many, I'm not saying a few, I'm saying many of you have reached out to me and said, Ryan needs help. What does he need me to get? We'll gladly go do that. Uh, can you just confirm, is this him? Because it seems kind of weird. So I just want to say, I sent an email to you. If you didn't see that email, it actually was from me. So here's what you'll see. You heard two asks this morning for generosity, birth choice and our students. And the means of the way that we will ask for you to engage in generosity will always be public, never private, discreet, just reimburse you on that. We'll never do that. It'll always be on our website. It'll always be on our social media. And our emails end with at seacoast-church.org. Okay? A pastor should never and will never ask you to give money secretly. That's not how we do it. We want to be above reward. You guys are so generous. We're so thankful for you. We want to handle that with the most transparency that we can. And it's evil what this person is doing. It's disgusting. It's despicable. It's heartbreaking. And yet we're going to pray for that person this morning as well. So, to be clear, Ryan did not email you. Ryan is on sabbatical. I hope he doesn't email you. I will be personally frustrated if he emails you on sabbatical. <laughs> he is not asking for a gift card. We do not do generosity discreet. We do it publicly celebrating. You guys gave $18,000 to our students, above and beyond what you're doing, so come on. That's the kind of generosity we celebrate. You are a beautiful church. Thank you for being that kind of church. Amen? Okay. We're going to go to John 5, but let me pray for us, and we're going to pray for the fisher. He's in need of something, apparently. So, Lord, thank you that you're Lord in this place. We've already said beautiful things about you this morning and sung things about you and to you and for you. We celebrate that you're a generous God, and so in respond, that people who have been touched by you respond in generosity with time and talent and treasure, and we thank you for the capacity and ability to do that. And we thank you for what you've done over the years at Seacoast and through the people, through people's generosity, 
that these buildings represent that, that these chairs represent that, that the kids in classrooms and students going to camp and having color wars in this parking lot this weekend and kids night out and, and on Friday, just all these moments of generosity happening so that people can discover life in you. We thank you for that, God. We pray that we get to be a part of that ripple effect in people's life, that the gospel will continue and extend beyond our own lives through our acts of generosity. And I pray for this fisher, even if they're watching now, God, I pray that they would come to know you. God, I pray that you would turn their hearts. Where, If they're in need, that you would respond and see that there's a different way to never take advantage or, uh, of people's generosity or to take advantage of causes of weaknesses, of severe sicknesses that are happening, and to distort that for things of evil. God, would you correct that person now, I pray. And as we study your text and allow it to study our lives, would you shape us as a community? Would we see that you are God? Would we see that we get a glimpse of your character a little bit more and it would inform how we live, work, and play, how we interact with one another, and how we engage as a church and our community? And so do what only you can, Holy Spirit, in this moment. Captivate our hearts, attention, and affection, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Great. John chapter 5. Here we go. If you were with us before, you'll see that we've been talking about the God who heals, the God who saves, the God who loves and welcomes the unlovely, the God who sees, and not just sees people that he recognizes them, but he, he sees them for who they are, where they're at, and meets them where they're at. He knows the deepest thoughts in their lives, and he sees them, and he invites them to come and follow and walk with him and work with him and watch how he does it. And we see the revelation of this God come incarnate in flesh in the person of Jesus. And the reminder, you'll keep hearing it week after week, John's aim is that you would know that Jesus is a Messiah, that I would know that Jesus is a Messiah, and that we would find life in his name. And he hammers it home verse after verse, page after page of the book of John. And today is no different. Today we'll see a miracle and a message. We'll see John highlight one of the many miracles that Jesus does and a message that reinforces who Jesus is. So follow along with me as we look at this. Chapter 5, verse 1. Sometime later, Jesus went to Jerusalem for the Feast of the Jews. We're not sure what the Feast of the Jews is. Chapter 6 would let us know that it might be Passover. But a Feast of the Jews would mean that at Jerusalem, it's a holy time. It's an important time. It's a time where people, there's a huge influx that come to the city to come and celebrate, to come to the temple and provide offerings, to come and share special commemorative meals celebrating who the Messiah will be someday, that God has rescued them and ransomed them from captivity. So Israel is in flux. There's people coming. They're celebrating. They're worshiping. Verse 2, now in Jerusalem, near the shepherd gate, a pool, which is Aramaic, is called Bethsaida, and which had surrounded by five covered colonnades or porches. Just so you can have a visual of it, here's Bethsaida. Currently, this is what it looks like. The sheep's gate. You'll see in Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 1 and following that uh, these men start building the sheep's gate. It might quite literally be where they wash sheep to prepare them to go to the temple, which is about 600 yards away from here. And it's massive. 
It's the size of a football field. If you watch The Chosen and you see this cute little pool, it's nothing like that. It's two massive pools. You'll see an artist's renderation of what it would look like at the time. Two massive pools with a 21-foot wall dividing the two pools with five porches all around it where people would gather. It's a massive undertaking, and it's a beautiful thing. It's a place where water would be gathered because you're in a desert. And we find that this pool has a special meaning for people. That Seda literally means house of mercy. And people would gather in influx to this house of mercy with expectation. And we'll see what they do. Verse 3. Here at this pool, a great number of disabled people used to lie. The blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. So quite a scene. The blind, the lame, and the paralyzed come to the house of mercy. And they come, and commentators would say that roughly around 300 people on an average day would come and populate those five porches and lay and waits for something to happen at the pool. But the influx of a festival season, you would see upwards of 3,000. It's like Coachella. There's nothing happening in the desert, and now it's going crazy, and then they go away again. It's a massive group of people, and, and, and the language that John uses here is that there's a multitude laying there, and they're literally stacked on top of each other. They're, they're, there's no room. They're just cramming on five porches, a football-length size, 21-foot walls to try to get into this water. The sights, the sounds, the smells. Can you imagine the crippled, the lame, the blind, the disease, all clamoring in the heat of Jerusalem, bodies on top of bodies, just waiting to get into this water. In our first year of marriage, my wife Tara and I, we went to Romania to do missions work, and um, we worked in this orphanage, and I'd never experienced anything like this. Of the severity of um, bodies that were broken and the sights that I could see that I just can never unsee them. The smells that were in there because people were sitting in their own filth and the, the smell of the room, you, you would walk in and it would quite literally just take you back. And so in our house, we would, for years going, we would say, man, I just got a whiff of Romania. Like, I can't unsmell that. Like, it's so bad I can taste it. And it gives this vivid memory that's probably what Bethesda is like at this point. There's no wind. These, these porches are covered, so wind is not coming in. It's stagnant water with people on top of people, lame, diseased, begging for healing, waiting at this house of mercy. Can you see it? Can you smell it? Can you hear it? It's quite an ordeal, and it's chaotic. As you look in your passage of Scripture, if you're looking along, you'll see it goes from verse 3 to 4. And most texts omit verse 4, but verse 4 gives us a little clarity of what's happening. It's a footnote probably in most of your Bibles. And it's just not a text that's as trusted, so that's why it's a footnote. It says this, that they would lay and wait for the moving waters. For from time to time, an angel of the Lord would come down and stir up the waters. And the first one to the pool after each such disturbance, would be cured of whatever disease they had. 
So thousands of people in a festival season surrounding five porches in the heat of Israel, all waiting for some bubbling to happen in this pool. And there's debate of what's happening in the pool. Some say it quite literally was an angel. There's a miraculous thing that would happen from time to time. And the first one in, it's survival of the fittest. Go. It's get out of the way and get in the bubbles. Go. Others would say it was, it's a hot spring, and that's what was happening. And others would say there was maybe an aqueduct system that there would be rainwater that would be gathered, and that was considered living water, and then the living water would, there would be a gate that opens to populate the stagnant water, and then the bubbling because of the aqueduct system would come. Whatever is happening there is not the point. The point is, is that some type of healing has happened That's why thousands are coming. Some expectation of healing and hope to happen in this house of mercy is happening. And so they lie and wait for bubbles. And the stirring of the water, it's like if you've ever been in the pool and done this with people, that's what the language is. An angel just stirs the water. Survival of the fittest of healing to get into that water in hopes of being healed. Verse 5. Now, there was one there that had been invalid for 38 years. We don't know much about this invalid, except he's been there for 38 years. It doesn't say he's 38 years old. He's been there for 38 years, and it presumes that there was a life before him becoming an invalid. There was something about his life that brought him to the circumstances that now has had him gathering at this house of mercy for 38 years in hopes of jumping into some bubbling water and maybe for the chance to be healed. So we don't know his age or his name or what brought him there. What we do know is this. He's broken. He's a broken man. 13,870 days in attempts to try and get into that water. 13,870 failed attempts to try and get into that water. And he gathers. And he's crowded. And he's passed by. He's quite literally broken by the circumstances of life that have brought him to there. He's broken by people because he's become an unlovely, unwelcome, just like the rest of these people. The pariahs of society, the zeros of society, the non-contributors to society, they're quite literally waiting to live hand in mouth on people's generosity to throw him a crumb. And here he is day after day waiting for healing. He's broken by people. He's broken by circumstances, and he's broken by time. See, there was hope probably in day 100 that I'll get in. My chances are pretty good. By day 2,000, maybe a little less hope. By day 10,000, he's just despondent. By day 13,870, he's just, it's never going to happen. I'm just going to be here forever. He's a broken man. Can you see him? The sights, the sounds, the smells, the chaos, the despair. He's passed by, which is why I love this next verse. Verse 6, if you're following along. When Jesus saw him, everybody say, saw him. Hard stop. When Jesus saw him. I had to like just take a breath and go, let me pause right there. 
13,870 days of not being seen. And Jesus enters the scene on these five porches with 3,000 people in a festival season, 600 yards away from temple, where he probably should go, and he makes his way into the multitudes, into the chaos and sounds and smells and stepping over people. He sees him. He takes an examination of this man's life. The, the, the Greek literally is he observes, he scrutinizes, and he takes it all in, what he sees. And he doesn't just see an invalid man. He sees the situation that perhaps this man needs more than just to get into the water. And the next part is this. Two more words later. He sees him lying there, and he learned. Say learned. He sees this man, and he learned. He literally is curious about him. He takes notice, and he's inquisitive of, how did this man get here? Perhaps he finds he's the man that's been here the longest. Perhaps he sees him, and as he sees him, he goes, oh, baby boy, I know what got you here. He sees him, and he learns about his story. He sees him lying there in despair. He takes notice of him. He's curious, and he moves to the next part. After seeing him and learning that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asks the question, do you want to get well. Now, as a former educator, and I was a student, undergrad, grad school, and we always practiced, and I would say, there are no dumb questions. But doesn't that sound like a dumb question? You've been here for 38 years. I see you. I've learned about you. You want to get well, which is why you're at this pool of healing, hoping that something stirs the water and by a chance you can jump in. And Jesus, after extrapolating all that information, asked the brilliant question, do you want to get well? Yeah, Jesus, I was kind of thinking that was the point of me being here. Of course I want to get well, would be the likely response, don't you think? It's why I've been coming here. It's why I've been here for 38 years lying, waiting, anticipating, despondent, distressed, in despair. This house of mercy feels like a house of misery. 38 years I've been waiting here. Yes, I want to be healed. Yes, I want to be healed. Can we do that now? Are you strong enough to pick me up? Because I'm ready, baby. I think I heard some bubbles. I kind of have recognized the sound and the smells of when stuff happens because I've been here for 38 years waiting. So if you're ready, I'm ready, Jesus. Yeah, I want to be healed. Dumb question. But as you look a little deeper, what Jesus is asking is quite profound. Jesus is literally asking him, are you ready? Are you really ready for life change? Are you really ready for transformation? Quite literally, do you want to be made whole? Are you ready for wholeness? Are you ready for the implications that come from being whole? See, the practical ones would be, no longer will you be a beggar here waiting, hand and foot, getting, you know, taken to the water, hoping somebody would take you. 
or hoping somebody's generosity would feed you. You come back to being a contributor to society. Quite literally, you'll never be back at this place. Are you ready for that? You'll have to go back into the workforce. And you've been out of the workforce for 38 years. You probably have no skills to speak of. So you're going to start at the bottom. Are you ready for that? And perhaps I think the most profound is, are you ready for your identity to not be tethered to your infirmity? See, for 38 years of negative self-talk of waiting and waiting, if you've been like that and experienced suffering, you know at some point it shifts from, I'm hopeful, I'm hopeful, to things will never change. And this is who I am. And this is my situation. And it'll always be like this. And it'll never get better. Do you want to be made whole? Are you ready for radical change and all the implications that that mean? Are you ready for a new identity no longer tethered to your infirmity? Are you really ready for that? The man's response is interesting. Verse 7, Sir, it's a word we looked at last week. It's a word of authority and respect and recognizing there's one greater than you in their presence. The invalid replied, I have no one to help me to the pool and when the water is stirred and when I try and get in, somebody always goes down ahead of me. See, do you want to be made whole? And his, his response is a diatribe of despair. You see, no one would take me or carry me, and for 38 years I could just get to the water, and, and, and people are stepping over me and pushing over me, and I can never get in the way. And, and Jesus is saying, that's not what I asked you. Are you ready for wholeness? And yet what you're saying is you're, you're giving me your, your story of despair. And there's beautiful things that happen in this moment. Without this man knowing who Jesus is, which we'll find out, that Jesus is saying, I have all the authority to seal the deal on this if you're ready. I have the divine sovereignty to make you well if you're ready for it. And there's personal responsibility somehow in there. All I need you to say is, yep, I'm ready. And from there, oh man, it's going to be a dance party. Quite literally, you're going to be dancing. It's going to be awesome. Are you ready? But no one will carry me to the pool, and this is my circumstances, and it'll always be like that. And that guy over there stepped on my head last week, and this sucks. Are you ready? Despair, gloom, doom. And here's what I love about Jesus. He doesn't address him. Jesus says to him in response to that, get up. Get up. Rise. Get on your way. Get moving. Not get out of my way. Get up and get moving. Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. The miracle and the message are coming now. The miracle. You've been an invalid for 38 years. You've been waiting for this water. Divine sovereignty, divine authority. Get up and walk. Get on your way. Go. You're whole. Go towards wholeness. Wholeness is your new reality. And instantaneously... The language is just like, it went from this to this. Somebody turned the light switch on. Boom. Muscle and sinew grow and boom. I'm up. I'm ready. I'm dancing. Can you imagine? 
38 years, I have a bad back every now and then, and just to go away, but for 38 years to be sitting there and laying and waiting and crying and mourning, and how did I get there? We'll find out that there's circumstances that maybe have led to him being there. And in an instant, he goes, no way! That was pretty clever. I was hoping I didn't fall when I did that, so. (laughs) That was not practice, by the way. CrossFit, I'm just saying. Um, No way. I'm dancing. I'm moving. My legs feel better. They've never felt like this in 38 years. I mean, I'm doing this, guys. I don't know what you're doing. 38 years, I'm testing. How fast can I run? Oh, my gosh, I can run again. This is awesome. I can feel my toes. I can feel my body. We miss that when we just see get up. But there's life that's happening in this guy's life. Instantaneously healed. Divine sovereignty, divine authority, get up, walk, get on your way. Wholeness is yours now. I, you didn't even ask for it. I gave it to you. Do you want to break up with that story and that identity now? Because your identity is your new. Your identity is your whole. Your identity is that you're healed. Get up, get moving. Verse 9. At once, the man was cured. And he picked up his mat and walked. A miracle. Beautiful story, maybe many of us are familiar with. Here's the next part, the message. Why does Jesus tell him to pick up his mat? Think about it. A mat. For him, impoverished man, historically in that day, would probably be, at best, an animal skin. It would be some old and tethered cloaks or maybe an old rug that he's been laying on for 38 years. Maybe he's got a new one along the way, but nothing of consequence. And in 38 years, 13,870 days, Is he really worried about that dingy rug? If you were healed today, after 38 years, some of you haven't even been alive for 38 years, so you're like, I have no understanding of that. I was five. Would you say, oh, and by the way, would you take your rug with you? You're out of there. Thanks, Jesus. Gone. I'm healed. New life. Pick up my old, stinky, funky rug. Why does Jesus ask him to pick up his mat? What is the point of that? It's not a natural ask from this divine healing. And yet Jesus is precise in what he does. He doesn't make a mistake in what he says and how he says it. And the answer is found in the second half of verse 9. The day on which this took place was the Sabbath. Everybody say Sabbath. Now we've talked a lot about Sabbath. Ryan talked about it before he went on sabbatical. I talked about it in the new year as we talked about healthy habits. I encourage you to go back to those messages. But here's the short of Sabbath. Jesus heals and then asks this man who is miraculously healed instantaneously to pick up and carry a mat on the Sabbath in the house of mercy 600 yards away from the temple on a festival. Make sense? 
No, it doesn't. Sabbath, a beautiful day to worship and delight and celebrate God's provision. But it's also an act of faith to say, I'm not going to do work on that day because I trust Yahweh to provide. It translates all the way up to today, and there's debates on what constitutes work. Today, in hotels all around the world for Jews in high populations of practicing Jews, there's something called a Shabbat elevator. You weren't supposed to make fire during the Sabbath because that would be work. And so in modern day terms, the Shabbat elevator is an elevator that opens by itself. You don't push any button because pushing a button would be the modern day use of work and fire. Okay? So they get in and it just goes up by itself. It opens every single floor until you get to your floor. You can Google it. It's pretty crazy. They walk in. It takes like five minutes because it does every floor. So if you're on the 21st floor, it's going to be a bit. You don't work on the Sabbath. It's still happening today. It's sacred. It's altogether otherly. It's saying God is in control and I trust him. And there's the Mishnah, which is the oral law back there, which was eventually written down. And the Mishnah would say, you don't do any healings on the Sabbath. Only in the case of an emergency, whether it's life or death, but no remedy or healing is to happen on the Sabbath. To do such is to sin. It's to break God's law. And here Jesus is, healing on the Sabbath. It's such a big deal. I'll read you just two quick ones. They're crazy verses, but if you want to read later. Numbers chapter 15. Here's what happens when the Sabbath is violated. Numbers 15, verse 32. While Israel was in the desert, a man went out and gathered wood on the Sabbath day. And those who found him gathering wood brought him to Moses and Aaron and to the whole assembly. And they kept him in custody because it was not clear what should be done. And then the Lord said to Moses, you ready for it? This man must die. He was picking sticks in the woods and he must die. And so the whole assembly stoned him outside of the camp. There's not many songs about that one. Jeremiah 17. This is what the Lord says. Be careful not to carry a load on the Sabbath or bring that through the gates of Jerusalem. Do not bring out a load of your house or that's work on the Sabbath. And if you do that, verse 27, if you do not obey and do not keep the Sabbath as a holy day by not carrying any load as it comes through the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, I will quindle an unquenchable fire in the gates of Jerusalem that will consume her fortress. Sabbath is huge. And the consequences for healing or carrying a load were death or at best disease, plague, or often what would happen an occupying army in Israel, such as Rome, back to modern day in this text. In his book, End of Religion, Brooks Cabby says this, it would not be uncommon for Jewish officials to be policing the streets in an effort to not have judgment come on Israel and thus in hopes of restoring national freedom. These religious leaders, we come to find out, 
are not just uh, being overly critical of a man being healed and carrying a mat. It's a matter of life and death for them. It's a matter of national freedom. Are we going to be under Rome's captivity yet again because this man is carrying a mat? So why does Jesus have him break two violations on a Sabbath day? This is the message. Verse 10. And so the Jews, meaning the Jews that would eventually come and oppose Jesus, said to the man, who healed you? It's a Sabbath day. The law forbids you to carry your mat. The man replies, the man who has been made well said, the who made me well said, pick up your mat. And so they ask, who is this fellow that told you to pick up that mat? The Jews see it as sin and law and maybe as in numbers are debating what should be done with this man. Where is he? Where's the culprit? And what Jesus is doing in demonstrating divine healing and authority and asking the man to carry up a mat is that he has divine authority over all things, including the Sabbath. We'll see throughout Scripture and even in books to come as we go through John that he often is doing things on the Sabbath like healing or allowing work to happen. Next week we'll hear from Steve as how the Father is at work and so Jesus is at work too. And so what the Jews are saying is sin. Jesus is saying, I'm above law. I'm the author of law. I'm the keeper of law. And I'm the clarifier of law. And I'm just revealing God's heart. Yes, I'm going to heal this man on the Sabbath. Because man was not made for Sabbath. Sabbath was made for man. And yes, I'm going to ask him to carry. Maybe as a reminder, never to return back to here. You're so whole, you're never coming back here. You're so whole, this is a memory to say, never go back to that place. But this man strolling into the temple, healed, and carrying a mat on the Sabbath is audacious, to say the least. But that message that John is informing us of this morning is that Jesus is the Messiah, and there's life in him. There's wholeness in him. And so, pick up your mat and walk. What you call sin, I'm calling a holy thing. It ends with this. The man who was healed had no idea, verse 13, who it was who healed him. For Jesus had slipped away from the crowd. Jesus, so full and confident in his identity and authority, he's not needing the praises of the men. He just walks away. Get up, walk, take your mat, see you later. But, verse 14, he finds him later that day in the temple and he says, See, you are well again. Quite literally, Jesus goes, Wow! Look at you! You're better. You're whole. You're healed. Awesome. Little dance together. You did it. Here we are. I'm so happy. I'm so ecstatic by what happened. And yet, he says something much harder. From there, wow, look at you. You're better. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. We could spend a whole sermon on that, and I won't. But there's something, there's a causal relationship happening there with sin and this man's circumstances. Whatever it was, and that's not true for every person found as an invalid, but about this man, something in his life led him to be an invalid. Stop sinning, you're made whole. Don't do that again. Don't return to where you were, or something worse could happen. And it's not a happy ending. 
It says, in passing, it looks very simple, but the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. And what that really means is that he didn't know who Jesus was, and he went and told on the Jews, that's the man who is in trouble. Go find him. I'm better. I'll take my legs. I'm whole. It's that guy over there. And from that day forward, the Jews plot to kill Jesus. That singular event is what transpires Jesus being kind of a disruptor and wondering who this is and curious about him to now his message and methodologies being altogether sinful, shameful, radical. We got to do something about this guy. He's disrupting sin. He's breaking Yahweh's law. He's not the Messiah. And John is saying emphatically, he actually is. That's who he is. That's who he said he was. Full of love, full of grace, full of truth. While you're healed, stop sinning. And that's the end of our message. A couple of implications. I invite the band back, and we're going to go to a time of communion here in a minute. Just a couple of observations. The Pharisees ask, who is this fellow? And in one sense, it's who's the culprit, but it's kind of the question of the day for all of us this morning. It's a simple question, but it's a profound question. If you align with John, you say emphatically, he is the Messiah. All of us have to answer this question of who Jesus is. So who is this fellow? The hope is that you would see that he's Messiah and there's life in his name. He's a God who loves and saves and heals. But who is this fellow to you? Is he who he says he is? And if he is, do you take him at his word? Second, God loves the broken. He sees him, he learns about him, he heals him and makes him whole. He loves the broken. Psalm 34, 18 says that the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. For that I am so thankful. The seasons of ebb and flow of life that there's brokenheartedness that comes in my own life and yours, we share that together often. And God is so near that he loves the broken. He sees the broken. He comes near the broken. And the good news of the gospel is he doesn't leave us in our brokenness, but he invites us to get up and get going. To get up and find new life and healing in him. And so his question to you this morning and to me is, do you want to be made whole? Do you know who this fellow is and do you want to be made whole? Are you really ready for the radical change that that means to get up and take Jesus at his word? For the person who's yet to place their faith in Jesus, that's a radical statement. But for the person who's in Jesus, he's still calling up and out to go and do the things that he calls us to. Both require obedience and both require a step of faith. Are you ready to be made whole? He loves the broken. He heals the broken. He doesn't leave us in our brokenness. Third, his ask of the man that he heals to not sin is an impossible task. And sin separates and violates this holy God and it keeps from relationship. And, and the impossibility that law shows us is that it's too heavy a weight. It's crushing and we can't keep it. And so Jesus, Messiah, the incarnate God who becomes flesh, bears the weight, lives a life that's perfect, bears the weight, is crushed, is killed, is buried, 
and rises again victoriously so that we might have life. He who knew no sin became sin so that we can be the righteousness of him. And finally, the last good news is the step of faith that I'm asking each of you to take this morning and consider is to get up and get going. What's your next step? Who is this man? Are you ready to be whole? Are you ready to receive the gift and recognize that sin is crushing, but God gives life? The law is burdensome and unattainable, but the law that comes through the finished work of Jesus is now the law of the Spirit. We get to walk quite literally in the Spirit to get up and get going, walking in the things of the Lord, to get up and get going and saying, you're the Messiah, I follow you at your word. I'm brokenhearted, you meet me in that. Now I can use that as a gift to meet others in their brokenness. I get up and I get going. What's he calling you to this morning? If you've never placed your faith in Jesus, I invite you today to take that step. And if you're like me who has short-term memory of the goodness of God, would you be reminded to not go to that place again, to get up and get going and walk in faith, in the Spirit. Amen? We're going to take communion this morning. I'm going to invite one of our elders, Kent Quakendall, up, and he's going to guide us through a time of communion this morning.